My name is Tim, and I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, it is, this is, I say this every Easter, every Resurrection Sunday that comes up, but this is just one of my favorite, most important, significant uh, days that I look forward to through, throughout the year, and uh, for so many reasons, but uh, first and foremost is that, that those of us that know and follow Jesus, we, we get together in this room and in rooms and places all over the planet and, and point to Jesus in a, in a unique and special way, and, and remembering his, his resurrection resurrection on, on this morning, on this day uh, in particular. We, we want to be shaped by that throughout our, our entire lives. Every morning we wake up, we want that to shape us, but, um, but this day especially. And so uh, it's, it's great to be with you. Uh, if, if you're here, uh, and this is normally where you find yourself on Sunday morning, it's, it's great to be with you. If, if you're here and maybe you haven't been for a long time or or maybe this is your first time in church, maybe, or uh, or somebody kind of invited you, coerced you, bribed you. However, however you find yourself here, whether it's whether it's something that you look forward to, or whether you kind of came kicking and screaming, um, or whether you're here and you're coloring a sheet in front of you and not paying attention to me at all, it's it's really really good just to just to be together. There's this letter that this guy named Paul wrote, and he wrote it to a church in a city called Corinth, which oddly enough, is very, very similar to the Portland-Vancouver metro area. It, it was about 2,000 years ago. It was in the first century, and they didn't have as good food as we have, um, but a lot of other things are very, very similar. But this guy Paul wrote in this letter to this young church where they're just figuring out what it means to, to be a family together, to be a community, and, and he writes this really significant sentence, and, and, and it goes like this. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, of the most important thing that I can pass on to you is, is this that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, which means it was, it was written ahead of time, but, but then it happened according to the scriptures. And, and then he was buried, which is normal. When somebody dies, they bury him. But then the next part's not normal, comma. And then he rose according to the scriptures, that, that he's alive, that he didn't rise and then die again. He didn't resuscitate and go back to to being buried and dead, that he, that he rose again. And, and because that happened, and because Paul writes about it some 2,000 years ago, we find ourselves here this morning. It, not only that, but a few sentences later, Paul writes, writes this. He says, for if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, and what he means by that, just to be really crystal clear, if that event didn't happen, if there's a point in history where that is skipped or deleted or didn't happen, or, or somebody uncovers something and says, nope, that didn't really happen. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Paul writes, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. It's, it's useless. Now, I realize in a moment like this, I'm the only one preaching. And so it would be easy to look at me and go, oh, well, you're the only one doing something useless. But the rest of the sentence says, and so is our faith. So we're all in this, for all of us that believe in Jesus if he didn't rise. And one of the parts of, of that, of what that means for us that believe and follow Jesus, and if you're considering following Jesus, factor this in, is that if, if that event didn't happen, the one that we celebrate today, if Jesus didn't conquer death and sin and rise again, come back to life after being fully, thoroughly, completely, certifiably dead, if he didn't come back to life, then all of this is, is useless and we're fools and we're a waste of time. But... If he did come back to life, because he came back to life, this is the most natural, normal thing to do. 
is to come together and to celebrate him and to declare it and to say the story over and over and over again that Jesus rose from the dead. And so that's what I want to do with us this morning together. We're going to do it through song and continue to do that. Um, We've got a friend that's going to get baptized in a little bit. Uh, Her name's Grace. She's going to do that as well and talk about Jesus. But I want to do it by telling another story that happened on that first Easter Sunday, first Resurrection Sunday. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll look to Scripture for just a few moments together. Uh, So would you do that with me? Would you pray with me? And then we'll open up the Bible together. God, we come into this place this morning, and And we celebrate you, and we acknowledge that you're good, and we acknowledge that you're much bigger than us, and we acknowledge that you see everything, and we acknowledge that you're before everything, that you created everything, that you you love, that you love us. That verse that Connor read earlier, that that you love us so much that you took action to step into our, our broken, confused, sinful, messed up humanity, and you're in the process of redeeming it and setting it all right again and making it good again through and through. And for that, we worship you. Holy Spirit, we invite you to work and move and to be alive and active in this space and in our minds and hearts this morning. And Jesus, as every day is your day, this is especially as we look to your resurrection. Would you guide us and teach us and meet us, each and every one of us, where we are this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I want to read this story. It's a... um, it takes place on the first Easter morning, and, and, uh, and what happens is that, that Jesus has rose from the dead. He's risen from the dead. He's no longer dead, and, and a few people already kind of have a hint that that's going on, but there's, there's two people that have been following Jesus. We know one of their names is Cleopas, and we don't know the other ones. It might have been his wife. It might have been, if he wasn't married, a girlfriend. It might have been a buddy of his, but the two of them were followers of Jesus. And so we, we meet them in this story in Luke chapter 24 on, on verse 13. We meet these two individuals after this horrendous weekend where Jesus was, was crucified, he was executed, and, and they're walking home. They're going from Jerusalem where everything had taken place and there's a whole bunch of activity and the death of Jesus had taken place. He was buried there and they're walking home to a, a town called Emmaus. And that's where we pick it up. And it says this in verse 13. Now that same day, Easter Sunday, the very first one, 2,000 years ago in the first century, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, which I had a friend tell me this week that that's a 10K, so roughly a 10K. If you've walked or run or cycled or crawled or whatever one of those, that's about a 10K from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So let's put Jerusalem over here, and that's where everything happened, and they're walking home to Emmaus, and their life has radically changed because they're dedicated their life to Jesus, and Jesus went and got himself executed, and so they're walking along, and Jesus shows up. So maybe Jesus was had a faster pace in the 10K, and he catches up to them, and I picture this as he kind of, Jesus kind of sneaks up in between the two of them and kind of, kind of just wrestles his way in there and goes, hey, how's it going? And so um, he says, what are you discussing? as you walk along. Hey, what are, you guys, what are you guys talking about? Can I be involved? I mean, that's basically what Jesus does. They stood still, so they stopped. Their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you, the, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And if you pick up a little bit of, of sarcasm or maybe disgust, um, you're just paying extra close attention. That's, that's like right there. He's, they're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, where have you been? 
Have you not checked your Twitter feed? What's going on? Everything that's gone on in Jerusalem, you should know about this. Everybody knows about it. And you're asking us why we're downcast, why we're sad, why we're, why we're just walking along sadly home. And downcast there is like, um, it doesn't necessarily mean they're looking down. It just means as you look at somebody's face, you can tell that there's something not right. You can tell they're struggling with something. You can tell they're upset. You can tell they're disappointed. Things aren't going well. And Jesus asked, which is, I think this is funny. Jesus just asked, what things? What? If you're not following this, Jesus was the one that was, was crucified and buried, you know, and, they, and they're upset because he's, he's dead. And then he asked, what things? Okay. Um, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. About Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Comma. Get this. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. So they say, okay, weird guy who showed up and kind of inserted himself in our walk and wants to walk with us, that's, that's fine. Then you start asking these ridiculous questions. What things? Let me tell you what things. Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody knows about him. He's this popular guy that's been teaching, and he's been great in word and deed, and everybody thought he was a prophet. And not only did everybody think he was special, but we were one of the few. We were one of the select. We were one of the first disciples that we decided to hitch our lives to him. And we said, we're going to follow you, and, and we had hoped that he was going to redeem us as a whole nation, that he was going to fix everything because these Romans are here, and they're ruling over us, and we don't like them, and we want our nation back. And we thought this was God's appointed one, and he was going to show up. And, and it says there that, that we had hoped these are some downcast two individuals who had lost hope. Their hopes had been dashed. Now, most of us, there may be a few of us in this room that can't relate to them, but most of us can relate to exactly what that feels like. We can relate to being disappointed. We can relate to, to losing hope. We can relate to, to hoping a relationship would go a certain direction, and then it doesn't, and, and we find ourselves downcast walking back home. We can find ourselves in line for a, a promotion or a, a significant shift in our career. And then it, the bottom just falls out overnight. And we don't know which way is up. And we find ourselves dragging our feet, looking at the ground, walking back home. We know what it's like to, to get financial news that, that rocks us to the very core. And we can't see straight. And everything is just kind of dizzy. And we don't know how to make sense of it or compute it in any way. And we find ourselves downcast and without hope. We know what that's like. We've all had some kind of hope dashed. We all know what it's like to, to hope for something, that, that something's going to work out in a certain way, or life is going to feel and experience and, and, and be something. And, and then a, an unexpected 90 degree, 180 turn happens, and we're all out of whack, and we don't know which way is up. And that's what these two guys, or guy and gal, were feeling, were experiencing. And and it says that they, we had hoped. And when it says we had hoped, what we see for the first time in these two individuals is not just a loss of hope, but a loss of faith. When we hope for something, which we've all done, we're demonstrating faith. Scripture defines faith like this, and the dictionary does too, so those line up really well and this works out well. But faith means, what faith is, is confidence and what we hope for. So if I hope for something, by the mere fact that I have hope, that I have a dream, that I want something to happen, that I hope something works out, I have faith. 
We can't help, we're, as human creatures, as human beings, we just, faith is just part of our inner being. We have faith in all sorts of things. And if we hope for something, we have faith that that's going to happen. That faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what's not yet seen. Here's a picture of what that looks like. If you happen to, to be a fan of our, our basketball team, you probably know very well that we're up 2-1 in a series. We were up 2-0, and then we lost the last one. And for some of us, we have hope that Dame will be exceptionally ticked off and will take it out on Russ in this next game, and we will win. I have faith. There we go. Amen. Today is about the resurrection of the trailblazer. No, that's, that's a little too dramatic and not nearly as important as Jesus, but um, that's, what, that's what faith is. We, have a, we, we know when the game is going to play. We're gonna at, we, know, we know who our team is, and we, we have faith, and we have hope that, that this will happen, that we'll win the next game, that, that we'll take this series, and it'll be the first time in how many years that we won the first round series. I mean, that's, that's what faith looks like. We want that. There's something in us that has faith that that can happen, and these two individuals, as they walk home, have lost. They've lost that. They've lost faith. It's interesting what they say next. This isn't Jesus. This is their words next. They say this. In addition... So all that's going on. Jesus, this guy we hitched our lives to, has, has gotten himself dead and buried, and, and we've lost hope, and he's not the one to redeem Israel like we thought. And then the next sentence, they say this. In addition, some of our women amazed us. In addition, some of our women... Now, that standalone phrase or sentence kind of... Some, well, great, some women amazed you. That could mean a lot of different things, right? They did some impressive feats. Or they, they bench-pressed 400 pounds, and those are amazing first-century Jewish women. Wow. I mean, that, that could happen. That could be what... That's not what it means here, though. When it says that some of our women amazed us, it's not like amazing, like, wow. It's more of the kind of amazing, like, astonished to the point of confusion. Some of our women confused us would be a, a simpler way to understand. We, we can't make sense of what they've told us. And here's what they told us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So they're seeing things. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman, women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And one of the companions was Peter in the text earlier that Peter had run to the tomb and he wasn't there and says Peter wondered hmm what's the explanation for this because he's not buried anymore so they're in this this place where they had hoped for something but now they were skeptical now they were loss of faith now they couldn't believe and Jesus does this and I don't know what this scene looks like because I wasn't there and it doesn't explicitly say it but I kind of picture Jesus it says they stood still and explained all this to him so Jesus just puts his arm around Cleopas who's done most of the talking and he kind of he kind of pats his shoulder, and, and maybe, maybe he squeezes him a little close, and he waits for Cleopas's eyes to come up and look at his, and he, and he looks at Cleopas, and feeling for his loss of hope and his downcast soul. How foolish you are. That, that's what he said right here. How, how foolish you are. Jesus probably didn't do that. He probably didn't, he probably didn't fool Cleopas like that. He probably... He probably just said, okay, okay, enough, enough. We're, we're done. You told your story. You've lost your hope. Okay, we're, your women are, let me, I'm going to fill in the blanks for you. So he says, how foolish you are. Now, that probably upset them a little bit. Dude, if you're going to show up and walk with us at the same pace, if you're going to walk home with us and ask these silly questions and listen to us, at least encourage us, at least be hopeful to us. And they said, no, how foolish you are. 
And then he goes on to this, how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. And there's an exclamation there. So there's a sense that Jesus actually said it with some intensity, that Jesus says, how foolish you are. How slow to believe. How slow to believe. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning, concerning himself. Jesus does this. He says, all right, okay, time done. We're going to start walking, but I'm going to tell you something. How foolish you are, and it says how slow to believe. And, and here, here's the thing. There's a, there's a few of us in this room right now who are, are quick to believe, and, and that just that comes naturally. I wish I was like you. I'm a slow to believe guy. Many of us are slow to believe people. It takes us a long time to really take that next step and go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on it with both feet, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust it. I'm going to stand here. That takes me a long time. I need to see a lot. I need to get there. But you know what? I so often convince myself that that's about my, my intellect, that if I can get a certain list of questions answered about Jesus, then I can stand firmly on his story and his good news. And other times I think, well, I'm too upset. Or maybe you think, you don't know my story and my pain enough to know if I can reach out and trust in Jesus. And we think it's about our, our intellect or our emotion. And Jesus says, no, no, no. When he says you're slow to believe, he's talking about something completely different. When he says slow to believe, he's saying you're slow of heart. You're slow of heart. He's not talking about our emotion. He's not talking about how we feel. He's not talking about our intellect, the questions that we need answered and the pieces that we need to fit together. He's not talking about those. He's talking about something deeper and more significant and more controlling in our lives. He's talking about here and not here. He, he's talking about our, our heart or our will. He says, you're slow to surrender your will. That's what Jesus says to these guys in the midst of their loss of hope and their downcast soul. He says, you're not, you're not believing. You're not surrendering your will. And what Jesus says is, okay, let's start walking again. And as he walks along and finishes out the 10K, he goes back to the beginning and he tells the whole story of Scripture. And they don't have the New Testament. They're living the New Testament, okay? So they've got, they've got the Old Testament and the prophets, it says, and he walks through all of that. And what he says is like, look, God's doing something. God's writing a new story in humanity. And the way that he's doing is he's leading up to a person. He's leading up to a Messiah. And the Messiah is not going to come and conquer a bunch of people. A Messiah is not going to come. Jesus isn't going to come to first century Israel and conquer Rome. He's not going to go person by person, centurion by centurion, and do some kind of judo on them and defeat them. That's what these guys wanted. And Jesus says, no, if you read the story and you, you actually surrender your will and you read it for what it's actually saying and you don't read into it what you want to read, what you see is that the Messiah actually has to suffer. The Messiah is the one who lays down his life. The Messiah doesn't come and overpower everyone. The Messiah comes and steps right into the pain and the miss and the downcast soul and the loss of hope and he suffers and he pays a price that no one else could pay. And Jesus is the one that goes to the cross and lays down his life and suffers. And he gets to the end and he says, listen, the reason you're slow to believe is because your heart has been wrapped up in a different story. You've wanted to believe something else that fits you better, you think. You've wanted to believe something that you think is true. You've wanted to shape your hope around what you've wanted to shape your hope around, which has been a all-powerful guy showing up and beating everybody else up. 
And he says, there's a different story, and it's actually a whole lot better than yours. It's that God loves you enough to pay a price for you, that God loves you enough to sacrifice you for you. That's a completely different story than the one you're believing. And they get home, and they're so fascinated by what this guy is saying along the walking path that they say, hey, come sit and eat dinner with us. And in the middle of dinner, Jesus breaks bread, and we find out this, that it says this. When he was at the table with them, he, broke, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight, which I don't know what that looks like, but gosh, I would love to see the videotape of that. Can you imagine that? Spend all day of this 10K walk with them. They're, they're just like, whoa, minds are blown. And, and then he hands them a piece of bread, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, wait a second. You're Jesus. You're the dead guy that's now alive. And then he's like, poof, disappeared. Like, kind of like, I, I, I wonder if it's like Obi-Wan Kenobi, like New Hope. Like, but I don't know. So that might be heretical. Don't, don't picture that. Take that, delete that. So he says, they asked each other, we're not our, we're not our minds intrigued? No. We're not our, our feelings all settled? No. We're not our hearts. We're not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, and they said to them, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. The Lord is resurrected. Jesus is resurrected. Then the two of them told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them and when he broke, when he broke bread with them. Jesus reveals himself to him finally. He says, okay, okay, here we go. This is, it's me. I'm alive. It was at the moment that they realized that Jesus is resurrected, that he was alive, that he was sitting in front of them, tearing apart bread and handing them a serving of it. And all of a sudden they realized what we thought had happened. The story that we had pieced together that we wanted to believe so was completely shattered and there was a new story that was revealed in physical form in front of them that Jesus is alive, that Jesus had conquered death, that he had defeated, he had claimed victory over both death and sin. And in doing so, fulfilled everything that had been written before him at that time. And then invites them to say, hey, come and believe and follow me, which they do in an instant. And then they run backwards over the 10K and get all the way back to Jerusalem. And the first thing they do is say, hey, Jesus is alive. Jesus is resurrected. It's true. And it changes everything. And for those of us that hear those words, the story is shaped by, defined by, and all through it, all of it. The thing that matters through all of it is this, that there is a God and he loves you. That there is a God who is seeking to change your life, to transform it, to redeem it, to save it. Not just answer all your questions and make you feel better. That just happens along the way. But to reach down into a deeper level and to change your very will. And if this sounds uncomfortable, it's worth it to actually have control of your very life. You heard it from Cecilia earlier. She's uncomfortable with not being in control of her own life. And yet it's better when Jesus is in control of it. And he doesn't want just your mind and just your emotion, but he wants your very will. And for some of us, our hearts are burning as we retell and declare the story that Jesus is alive, that he's resurrected. And for others of us, we still have our questions and we still have our resistance. And Jesus is still meeting you exactly where you are, saying, hey, can I walk along with you? Hey, what's going on? What things? Tell me about it. And he's there and he's walking and he's listening and he's trying to get your attention, but not just your attention, he's trying to get your heart. And the reason he is, is because there is a God and he loves you.